Would you like to become a better worshiper? Yeah. Praise and worship. We're going to be <clears throat> talking about worship this evening. Next Wednesday, I'm going to do something. Um, I'm going to take you through some ways about diving deeper into Scripture and give you some tools that's easily accessible for you. Um, and like I said Sunday, if you want to research something in the Bible, you don't have to find a library somewhere. It's If you've got a computer or, or an iPad or a phone, there's all kinds of stuff that you can dive into, and you can just stay there. Norm Geisler did a thing on an encyclopedia of biblical or of uh, apologetics. And um, I got it on when I had a PC and I had PC study Bible. And literally I could spend hours in Norm Geisler's uh, encyclopedia of apologetics. It is the wide variety of subjects, one of the great minds when it comes to um, apologetics of Scripture. I'm going to take you to something that you're familiar with. It's the uh, woman at the well in John chapter 4. And we're going to, and I hope you have something to, to jot down some scripture. I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures this evening. So some of them you're just going to have to go to on your own. I'm going to make reference to them. But we're going to read a portion of this conversation between the Samaritan woman and, and Jesus. Now, Without me reading any part of it, what did this conversation gravitate to? Religion? In a way, but what about religion? Be a little bit more specific. Okay. Location, location, location. To her, the issue was where you did that exercise. And Jesus answered that and really kind of in a way, I don't know what the word would, he corrected her. I wouldn't say he shamed her, but he uh, was close to it. As soon as she realized he was a prophet, she threw out a rabbit to have a rabbit trail because she didn't want to talk about her failed marriage. She, she, let's, let's talk about something else. Let's have a discussion on, well, you know, this is, this is Samaria. This used to be the headquarters of Israel, the ten tribes. and We have a mountain here we worship on. It's almost like she defended that somehow her, her background in being there had to be something toward her good. And, uh, of course, Jesus responded to it. And we're going to read this uh, in verse 21. When, after she said, you know, about the mountain and we worship, you know, we worship at this mountain, uh, but you guys claim that we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And he said to her, Believe me, woman, 
A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And what was Jesus saying just with that statement? What was he saying? Location is not the issue. Where is not the issue? She wanted it to be the issue, but he says, that's not, that's not the issue. And then he kind of qualifies. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, and, and he transitions out of that. He, he lets her know that she's mistaken. She's, she's mistaken about the mountain, and she's mistaken about what she's worshiping. He basically said to her, you, you don't know what you're worshiping. We, we know what we worship because salvation is part of who we are. And he says, yet a time is coming... And it's now come that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's not where you worship, it's how you worship. Now let's look at the word worship. Proskuneo is a combination of two words. Pros, meaning toward. Anybody want to take a wild guess what cuneo means? This is the most unusual word translated worship. It literally means to kiss. And to kiss toward means there's a bowing action, and it comes from monarchs, people coming into a monarch and bowing down and kissing the hand, kissing toward. It was like giving really accolades to this person, but also the posture was that of submission. So this word actually means to have a sense of loyalty and love and submission and exaltation and recognizing the one you're worshiping as higher than you. So Jesus, she's using this word and Jesus is using the same word. They're not talking about two different things. They're talking about the same thing. He says, now, if you're going to kiss towards something, if you're going to do that, let me tell you what the Father is wanting people to come to him. He's like, the Father is seeking people to come worship him, right? Don't you get that from that, what he said? That the Father is seeking people like that, that worships him that way. That has this sense of awe. This, and here's where I think we use two words interchangeably, and they are not anywhere near meaning the same thing. Praise and worship. Not even close being the same thing. And yet we use them as though they're indelibly connected and they happen at the same time. I'm going to make a distinction here this evening on on what is the difference between praise and worship. Praise can be worship. But praise actually means to compliment. 
when um, Psalms 100 begins. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Hallel. Song. I mean, this is a song that's telling us we should come before God with complimentary songs of him on our lips. That's praise. You can sing any song you want to, but doesn't necessarily mean you're worshiping. Because worship is the posture of the soul. Worship means more than saying something. Worship is the motivation within you for whatever you're doing. Actually, worship is something you do more than what you say. And Jesus qualified it. He says, what dimension is the Father looking for? And here's where I think, are we going to be better worshipers? Are we we going to move forward in worship personally? And And I think, really, I really think this. If we're not involved in private worship, we're not really worshipers. If we have to come in here and, and join our voices together and, and to worship the Lord, something is horribly wrong. We, we can have concerts. We can sing songs. It doesn't, doesn't mean any part of our, the, soul, the posture of our soul is kissing toward God worth. When I went to Brownsville, the first time I went to Brownsville, I took young Frank Cochran with me, and we were like, we were like this, you know, we were like watching everything from the balcony. And uh, one of the things that when I called Brenda, she said, well, well, how'd it go? What is it like? And I said, well, to me, it's a revival of intimacy with God. I mean, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of demonstrations of people, you know, shaking and falling and, you know, I'm, I was raised in Pentecost. If you didn't knock seats over sometime during worship, you just wasn't having good worship service. And none of that bothered me. But what, I said, this is what I detected. It's, the songs are not about the Lord. Almost all of them are toward Him. They're second person, not third person. That's a huge difference. It's when you become more personal that you... You don't talk to somebody in third person like they're over there and you're talking about them when you're conversing. It's second person. You, you, you're, and this is what worship is all about. Now, let me take you over to Luke 4 just for a moment. And uh, this is kind of tied in. Boy, just stay with me for a moment here. This is the three temptations that Satan comes to Jesus right out of the start of his ministry. I mean, he's hardly dried out from being baptized. And the Holy Spirit just drives him up into that mountain, that barren place, without food or water for 40 days. And it is, it is nose-to-nose combat with the evil one. And the Scripture gives us three, three hard tests, temptations. And one of them is Satan actually asking, I think it's around verse 8, that Jesus responds, but Satan actually asked Jesus to worship him. You see, we use the word worship, but think about what that sounded like to Jesus 
when the, the devil was saying, would you kiss toward me? He wasn't talking about his posture. He was talking about giving something more to him than just a symbol of recognition. He wanted, he wanted his soul. He, he wanted him to give him what he was. And he said, and then he quotes something, right? It is what? Written. That thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only, and him only shalt thou serve. I think it's how it's written, right? Do you know where it's written at? Do you have a cross-reference in your Bible that says where it's written? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Deuteronomy is the second law. It's the last book of Moses. It's a recounting of the law given, and this is a, it actually means a repeat of the law. And chapter 6 is this great admonition to parents about teaching their children and writing the things on the wall and the doorpost and, and just embedding truth into your children. And then in verse 13, um, if you're in the King James or something like that, it's going to read, you shall, what, fear the Lord? Is that how it reads? You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve and shall worship him and swear by his name. Is that what it says? Anybody's got numeric standard King James? It reads a little bit different. It talks about you shall, you, you will fear the Lord and, and serve him and keep his oaths, Right? And Jesus is quoting this about what makes up worship. For one thing, he says, if we really think about it, worship is not optional for us. We're commanded to do it. Now, I don't think the Lord gets any joy out of us saying, well, I'm, I'm only doing this because I'm supposed to. Because the heart's not in it, so there you go. The heart, the, if you worship him in spirit and truth, it's not going to be artificial, right? But it says worship starts with an, a fear or reverence or an awe of God. That's, that's at the centerpiece of worship. And for us, I think if we want to say, Lord, I want to be a more transparent worshiper with you. I want fellowship with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to stay in your presence. I think we have to come to a place to where we have a renewal of the awe of God. How great he is. I, I just don't see where people get a little too casual with God with terminology. And it's like, you know, they're talking to their daddy. You worship God, first of all, because he's God. He's not anything like this plane that we're living in, this dimension we live in. He's be, I, I was telling Larry today after our staff meeting, you know, I said, it still amazes me that God's attention is on this little speck in his universe. And on the people who inhabit this little speck that he talks to us 
I said, that blows me away that the God who created everything that's out there, what we have seen and what we don't have telescopes strong enough to see, he's focused his attention on us. Now let me take you to a couple more places. In Philippians chapter 3, Remember this, fear, it's interesting that Jesus put serving the Lord with worship, right? And him only shalt thou serve. So we fear him, we bring this sense of awe with us, we desire to serve him, and we desire to keep his oaths, his law, his commandments. Um... Someone's got Philippians 3.3. Just stand up and read it real loud. Or I can read it. You can read it? All right. It is the mark. See, he's, he's... the first verse is this is kind of an awkward place. He's talking about people who make circumcision in the flesh a big thing. He said, but we are really, if, you, if you're people of God, you are of that group without anything connected to the flesh involved. He said, but here, here's what it is. Out of that connection with God, we worship him. We are the ones, we are the, it mark. Listen, Christians are marked by their fruit, are they not? And I don't, I don't know, I don't understand anybody that knows Jesus that's, first of all, not awed by that, and secondly, does not want to worship him and give him his due and what he deserves. And he's telling us in Philippians, he says, this is the mark of a Christian, that they worship God, but they do it in the spirit, right? It's a spiritual thing. I wish every time we would sing that it was worship. It would be easy, wouldn't it? We start singing and then worship happens. <laughs> and you think about, to me, songs, the lyrics of songs matter. I, I rewrite songs all the time when I'm singing. If I don't like the lyrics, I don't tell... Brandon, go up there and change that. I don't, I, but I sing my own version to it. There was some, a new song the other day I like. No, I'm singing a different line there. <laughs> I, what I say, I want it to be real. And I want it to be accurate. I, I, I don't want it to be superficial. I, there's songs that, to me, is, has very little depth to them. This is why we really make a mistake when we get away from the hymns. And I'm not talking about just singing them in here. I'm talking about part of our worship. You know, and can it be? I was thinking about Dr. Cy Homer, president of Southeastern Bible College in that old tabernacle, no air conditioning in it. You know, bless their hearts, they got a, sanct- a, a, a beautiful sanctuary after we left. We had chapel in a big old spacious tabernacle. But he would start singing that song by John Wesley. And can it be 
that I should gain an entrance in. And we're standing there looking at each other like, whoa, what is that? And can it be that I should? And he goes on and sings all the verses. It's like, oh, my goodness. But we weren't listening to the words. It's like a doctrinal discourse put to music. When I survey the wondrous cross, it's not even better lyrics you'll find. It is well with my soul. You know, you can be contemporary. I'm telling you, a lot of the hymns were introduced way before a lot of people were literate. And this is the way they learned doctrine. This is the way they could remember doctrinal truths. They put it to music, and people remembered the basis of their salvation. It wasn't just part of the service. It was part of them expressing their love for God. Rejoice in Christ is also in Philippians. A spirit of joy ought to be part of our worship. Right? The enemy wants your joy. The joy of the Lord is the strength. And if he can get you down, if the enemy can get you down and take away your singing. You see, this is, this is where you just got to be like, walk it out by faith. When you're in your worst battles, turn the music up. <laughs> Sing. I walked into Cracker Barrel the other morning and they had some ridiculous country song on the, about beer and stuff. And I was like, I says, you know what? They need them some Keith Green music. That's what they need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them some music to play. I said, y'all try this. Y'all have a bunch more happy people in here. And happy people usually eat more. It might be economically profitable for you. But here again, here's this third dimension of what you're having to deal with. What does it say? What did it finish up in Philippians 3 3? And have no confidence in the flesh. Brother Strader used to really be a tickler about this. He said, Music should provoke the spirit, not the flesh. Because music will almost inevitably provoke one or the other. You think about how music is used in the dark culture of our world to spread all kind of garbage with heavy rhythm beats. It's not easy to figure out. It's real easy to see it's appealing to the rhythms of the body. Because everything about the, the body is about a rhythm. You breathe on rhythm, your heart beats on rhythm, everything. And when the music gets to so much that the rhythm overtakes your body, you're no longer in the spirit. You are in the flesh. No matter what you call it, it is provoking something other than the spirit. 
And this is why Christian music and music in church needs to be watched so that the, the music does not dominate. The music accompanies worship. You know, Nobody likes to hear someone sing and you can't hear them when the instruments overpower them. That's why they call them the accompaniment. <laughs> but there's sometimes that it's the, it's the thump of the guitar and the thump of the drums and it's the... And, and you, all you have to do is think a little bit about, you know, my goodness, what was that restaurant went out of business down here? Not Longhorns, it was Long something or Long Star. We went in there to eat one time, and Brenda and I had to yell at each other <laughs> to talk. What did you say? They were playing the music so loud. And when, you, when you're in that environment, you can't think. And this is why it's okay to, to have music, but don't let the music be what drives. Let the music accompany your spirit so that you don't have any confidence. Having no confidence in the flesh means I'm not going to do this in the flesh. You just make a declaration, I am not going to be in something that causes me to step into the carnality. I'm going to go by the spirit. Um. Well, let me, let me just give you some verses to look up. In Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, an angel comes and gives the gospel message for the 144,000. Boy, Revelation is a great book. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. And I'll just tell you the gist of it, but you, you need to read it. The 144,000 are ready to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God there will be people saved during the tribulation period. It'll be those evangelists that God has sealed with his seal to protect them from the Antichrist, and they are sealed where they cannot be harmed by the Antichrist. They're going to go out throughout the earth, and the angel tells them the gospel that they're to, to preach. And in the middle of that gospel is to worship God, to give obeisance to God, to kiss forward to God, to give God the worth. And this is going to be the gospel of the kingdom. This is the good news. This is at the heart. Listen, at the heart of salvation is that you find out it's not about you, but it's about him. That's what happens at salvation. That life does not revolve around me. It is supposed to revolve around him. And until it revolves around him, it revolves around us. It's our needs and our comfort and our opportunities and our job and our hobbies and, and our home and our car and our possessions, and, and that's it. Until he comes into your life and reorients your compass. That is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. And let me give you places in the Bible this is going to be rapid fire. Are you ready? That people actually came to Jesus and bowed down and the word worship is in the verse. And not once did he say, you know, one, one occasion a woman comes in behind him 
and starts kissing his feet. Because he said to them that looked at her and they was like, well, what is she doing? She's not even supposed to touch him. And he says, I come in here, you don't, you don't do a thing for me. You don't embrace me and give me a kiss. But since I've been here, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, I don't know, I'd feel awkward if somebody did that to me. Like, what are you doing? But he didn't stop her. Why did he not stop her? It, it fit. It, it wasn't embarrassing him because it was about who he is. He was, he was absolutely comfortable with who he is. And it, it fit. And you see, everybody else, all right, here it goes. I'm just going to give you passages of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 8, 2, the leper. The leper that came and bowed down and worshipped him and says, Lord, if you can, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And it's the word proskuneo, giving Jesus worth, worth and the, the ruler that comes in Matthew 9, 18, that comes and bows down to Jesus and worships him. The disciples in a boat. This is Matthew 14, 33, after Jesus rescues Peter from drowning. And they both walk and they get in the boat. And when they get in the boat, the scripture says in Matthew 14, 33, that all the disciples worshipped him. I think I would have too after seeing that, wouldn't you? The woman of Cana in Matthew 15, 25 comes and worships him. The Jerusalem women that leave the garden and Jesus appears to them, Matthew 28, 9. They rush to his feet and bow down. You see, I don't, I don't think it's a problem of people accepting Jesus as Savior. They, they just don't want him dominating their life. They want him to be that. They want him to be their safety net and their ticket to heaven. Because you know when you're really born again, that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for him to oversee your life and to help you make the right decision. And when you bomb out, there's a relationship there that you can go and bow to him again. And he loves on you. And he helps you to your feet. And helps you keep going. You want that. You don't want to be. You don't want to be separated from him. You know all the things that David. David could not bear to think. Was not have the presence of God in his life. Says you can do anything you want with me, but please don't take your presence from me. I can't live. He was a true worshiper. Did he mess up? Yeah. But he did not want the consequence of that mess up to rob him of the fellowship that he knew and enjoyed and treasured the sense of worshiping God. He said, please don't. Please don't take that from me. Take everything you want, but don't take that. 
I can't live without you. The 11 disciples in Matthew 28, 17. This is when he appeared to them. This is a really unique verse because it says, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. I don't, I don't get that. How do, you, how do you doubt that? Oh, he appears to them resurrected and they worship him, but some are like, I don't know, I don't get it. The man of the Gadarenes, you remember him? The Gadarene demoniac came and, and boy, he knew who he was. Or the devils in him knew who he was. And he bowed down. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 16. The man born blind in John 9, 38 comes and worships him. And angels in Hebrew 1, 6. Angels worship him. Now, here's, here's where I think there's a little bit of a formula. People like formulas. It's like recipes. You see, when I go to cook something, I've got the measuring cup. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm measuring it exactly. Because it's the rules, right? <laughs> Can't mess with the rules. But here's a formula. And, and, and I'm sharing this with you because I, I want to become more of a worshiper every day. And so music, I start with music. And if you ever get a chance to read Eric Metaxas' uh, book on Bonhoeffer, man, you all listen to what captured Bonhoeffer's heart. You know, he was, he was over here in the 1930s went to Union Seminary in New York. He went to his own church, which is the Lutheran tradition, and said there's not any gospel being preached. You know where he found, where he heard the gospel? Anybody know that story? Harlem. He found an African-American church in Harlem, and he he almost thought he died and went to heaven. He said, these people are real. There's substance to them. There's substance to the preaching. And he actually, and I think it was on wire recorders. I don't think they, they had even had the magnetic tape yet. He even took back. Can you imagine people in Germany when he took back the singing of Harlem, of a Harlem church, an African-American church, he takes it to Germany and says, y'all got to listen to this. <laughs> but he said it, it captured him. And he said, because they're real, they're genuine. This is the truth. This is the gospel. And he, when he led people into ordination, when he, it's a, it was a long thing to become an ordained minister in the Lutheran tradition. He would take them out for days on regimentation. On, they, wouldn't even, they couldn't even talk to each other until they talked to God. It wasn't monastic life, but they had to listen and sing and worship. And so I think there's something to spiritual disciplines, right? I mean, you're sharing me, but you feel like God's pressing on you about spiritual discipline. And, and you, have to, you have to walk in a spiritual discipline. So start in the morning, do not start with the television. Start with singing. Yeah. That's not a good start either, Facebook. Start with devotion. Start with singing and worshiping the Lord and, and watch 
how the sensitivity that you walk in changes. And you become more like, well, I'm going to tell you this. I think when you do that, God smiles. He says, yep, you're becoming one of those that I really like. You mean he likes us? He seeks people to worship him that way. He's seeking. He's seeking all of us in this room. He says, oh, I wish you'd come. I wish you'd come early in the morning and just fellowship with me. Start your day off with me. Let's get started together. Let's, let's kick this day off together. Sounds like a good start, doesn't it? But when you go into praise and the posture of your soul is one of recognizing his greatness, I'm telling you, you're going to move into worship, which is simply a deep interaction with God of loving him, listening to him, valuing him, giving him worth that can move into the worship him in spirit and singing in tongues, getting prophetic words from him, getting things to write down, listening to him. This thing about the normal Christian is just someone who goes to Sunday service and reads their Bible a little bit and you know, that's not normal. Normal is living this every day. Loving God every day. Worshiping Him every day. And that's what is going to set us on fire. Is the daily walk with Him. Loving Him. I told Larry this, and, I, and, and he, you know, when I got saved, I was about nine years of age. And when I got up from the altar, the right side of that altar in Childersburg, Alabama, and walked back to my seat, I knew something had totally changed inside of me. I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand it. But from that day on, there's not a day went by in my life that I didn't think about him. And I didn't think about trying to honor him and be submissive to him. You can have all kinds of things start crowding it. I want to tell you, that voice will speak to you when you're getting overcrowded and says, we haven't had enough time together. I'm glad he does that. Stand with me. Um, really, I hope, I hope you can be here next week because I'm, I'm going to show some things on the screen to just help you. My utmost for his eyes is a great devotional. You know, written, actually written by Oswald Chambers' widow. She was a meticulous note taker. He didn't write that. She wrote it and put it into a devotion. For someone who died around 1917 in Cairo, Egypt, because he was ministering to, I think, Australian soldiers in World War I that was there, and he's buried there, died in his 40s from an appendicitis or an appendectomy surgery. Look at how he's still touching people because of his 
commitment to the purpose of God. Lord, I pray that all of us will have a lasting influence with those around us. We need influence ourselves, all of us. I need to have voices influencing me for godliness. But how neat it is for us to realize that we can begin to reflect that influence on others. I pray, Lord, that all of us in this room will be somehow captured by the Spirit to say, listen to God. Listen to the voice of the Lord. And you're speaking to us things that we need. We do need you. We need you more desperately than what we can even express right now. Please help us, Lord. Please help us with the distractions, with the pressures, with calendar, with things going on, schedule. It can just overwhelm us at times. Help us to be disciplined enough to guard our time with you, to guard those moments we talk to you and love you and worship you. And help us, Lord, to be better worshipers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.